Good evening. <laughs> feel like a Verizon commercial. Can you hear me now? Good. Romans chapter 1, that's where we are. That's not what we'll say by the end of the night, though. <laughs> Somebody said, yeah, right. 13. <laughs> we were about verse 13, so we're going to start to take this in chunks. I had a good talk with our teacher last week, and uh, he's amenable to moving forward and a little faster. Uh, he's been under some great encouragement. <laughs> so, so 13, 13 to 17, we talked about the fact that the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time using the word I. He wants, he's very close, and he wants to be close, and he talks about his desire and his intentions uh, for the brethren there in Rome. So he, uh, this is about now verse 14, 15, 16, right in this area down to 17. Paul says and uses expressions, I'm under obligation, verse 14. Uh, King James says debtor, I believe it is. I am debtor to, to the Greeks, to the barbarians, both to wise and the foolish, so that for my part I'm ready, eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That expression at the end really, again, just kind of encapsulates the book. The just will live by faith. How will a person be justified before God? How does a person live right in the sight of faith is how that will be done. And frankly, it's how it's always been done. Paul uses the expression here, I am a debtor. I am under some sort of obligation. And I think uh, he means that relative, not simply as you and I might use it, that a person who becomes a Christian has obligation, if you will, to share the good news of Jesus. Certainly, if you factor in the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But Paul is also an apostle. Back, he says that earlier. He has a unique obligation relative to that ministry, and he has been called into that ministry. And he has then this, this debt, if you will, uh, by that charge of preaching the gospel to the whole world, to everybody. Uh, Paul would say that relative to his life, and he talks about it in those kinds of terms. So in these first, he says he's not ashamed of it, verse 16. He's not ashamed of the gospel. He is eager to preach it. Uh, we don't talk about it very often, but Paul learned it. Paul came to a knowledge of the truth and learned and obeyed the gospel. And so, in that sense, he's certainly eager then to share the gospel with others. And he emphasizes very often the Jews in that desire, not unlike us. Uh, trust that when you first heard the gospel, you probably went home and shared it with those you loved. Uh, that's, Paul would want to do the same thing. He says he's not ashamed of it. That's not true of everybody. For the Greeks, it was foolishness. Uh, and there was some emphasis on, on being ashamed of it. They would say as much. Uh, Acts chapter 17, you remember they called him a, a babbler, uh, that speaking about God coming in the flesh and dying for the sins of the world, that that was foolishness. And so that's kind of how they, they taught it and thought, thought about it. He, uh, he's not ashamed of it. It is the truth, and he has no, no shame regarding what the message of the gospel is. Paul was, on occasion, fearful. You might hear him in 1 Corinthians 2, 
talk about his time in Corinth, and, and he would say he was, he was in weakness. He, he was afraid. He, he had his own issues, but shame is not one of them. In fact, he would say that to Timothy, be not ashamed of me and uh, the gospel. Several things stand out about the gospel. I'm going to move forward and move on. I think you got a good hold of 16 and 17. I'll pause for any thoughts you have, anything you want to add to this thought, though, because I'm already hearing myself talk too much about 16 and 17. Anything you'd like to add to 16 and 17? 16 and 17 is important relative to it is the gospel that has God's righteousness in it. Justification the emphasis of the book will be the gospel. In fact, you could start from verse 1 and read down to verse 17, and you'd really get a very good foundation of what Paul is saying that's really going to encompass the rest of the book. The just, those who will be just, will be that way by faith, and that will be accomplished through the gospel. The gospel, he also says, has and contains the righteousness of God. It's revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is in the gospel. He'll talk about that later in chapter 3. When we get to about 24, 25 of chapter 3, we'll make mention of that again. That brings us to the next major section, from verse 18 down to verse 32. And if the gospel is the introduction and the thing that both the Jews and the Gentile need, then verses 18 to 32 explains why the Gentiles need it. Why do the Gentiles need the gospel of which Paul has been speaking? And the reason that they need it is sin. Sin is going to be introduced here from about verse 18 onward, and then we'll get into chapter 2, and we'll see that the Jews had the same problem, the problem of sin. And really, that's going to underscore the major problem in the book. Why do you need justification? It's because of sin. Why do you need the gospel? It's because of sin. And sin is of such a nature and issue that we're going to end up talking about it really from about here over to about chapter 7. Sin is going to be talked about in one way or another all the way through that section because it is the problem. When we get to chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul will say all are under sin. He has in mind the Gentiles of chapter 1, the Jews of chapter 2. So he takes them individually. First, he talks about the Gentiles, and that's what we'll do next. That's verse 18 down to verse 32. The need for the gospel, it's sin. Sin deserves God's wrath. Paul will say that. It's ungodliness. The ungodliness of men will be talked about. The unrighteousness of men. The dishonesty of men. All of that will be in this section. It's a practical guide, really, as to how man came to need justification in the first place. And in a very real sense, it serves as a warning to future generations. You and I should read Romans 1, 18 to 32, and understand that that happened to people in the past, and if we do the same thing at any point in time in the future, the results will be the same. Begins in verse 18 down to verse 25. Paul talks about the wrath of God. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. 
Now, the gospel, verse 16 and 17, is revealed from heaven, but so too the wrath of God. The gospel, good news, comes from heaven, and the wrath of God comes from heaven. In fact, the wrath of God, Paul says here, is revealed. It is to take the cover off. It's to disclose it, to uncover it. God lays bare his wrath and allows man to understand that sin deserves and warrants God's wrath. It's God's way of saying what you're doing is wrong. It's God's way of saying what you're doing is unacceptable and needs to stop, and then God will provide a means for man to stop it and to turn. Before judgment with God, there is always mercy and grace offered. Judgment is announced or pronounced, and then here's an opportunity to escape the judgment. You can see this as early as Genesis 6. Verse number 5 says, The wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every imagination, thoughts of man's heart, was only evil continually. It grieved God at his heart, Genesis 6, 5 and 6. And then God said, I will destroy man whom I have made. Before the judgment of verse 7, it's announced, but verse 8 says, but Noah found grace. And so before this judgment comes, grace will be offered. Noah will be used to provide humanity an opportunity to escape the coming judgment. And this is the way of God. God is righteous. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. You'll notice it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. There is no ungodliness of which God is okay with. There's no ungodliness where God approves of. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Let's talk quickly about ungodliness. You'll see it again in chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, when we quote that great passage, while we were yet without strength in due season, Christ died for the ungodly. The idea of ungodly is to be impious. It's an attitude and disposition toward God to lower him, to treat him with less regard than he is due. It is an irreverent attitude toward God, ungodly, impious is what's involved. And so he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. On the other hand, unrighteousness or injustice has to do with how we treat our fellow man. We're never really going to get away from that triangle of which we spoke some time ago. There is God, us, and others. And that's really it. And so you can be ungodly and pious toward God, and you can be unrighteous toward your fellow man. Sometimes a person can be godly, have a right attitude toward God, be disobedient, and then be unrighteous toward his fellow man. David might serve as a good example of that. While David was never an idolatrous person, he was certainly disobedient. But if you had asked David, who is your God, he would have said Jehovah. And he would have said that before, during, and after the events with Uriah. While he may have maintained a godly disposition, he was certainly unrighteous toward Uriah. Righteousness has to do with how we treat each other, godliness with God. Why is God's wrath revealed, verse 18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness? He says at the end of the verse, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So capture the whole thought. This is really about God and about humanity, the Gentiles, actually. 
He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident. God gave evidence for himself. And so his wrath is revealed against men who ungodly, unrighteous, and suppress the truth. He goes on to say, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Why wrath? Because God gave evidence. And that evidence, he says, from the creation forward has been clearly seen. They understood the evidence. The evidence created sight. The sight created understanding. The understanding should have created submission. They knew, and he will actually say that in the next verse. For even when they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and foolish heart was darkened. And so they knew God. Now, again, God's wrath is revealed because they suppressed the truth. They were unrighteous. They were ungodly. And they knew. How did they know the creation? God made it evident to them. Since the creation of the world, which is really how it's supposed to work, you're supposed to understand that the things that are made were made by that which does not appear. You're supposed to start with what you see and reason backward to. We didn't make that. In fact, he says here at least three things. He says his invisible attributes, and so it's not material. The material didn't make this. The invisible did. He says his eternal power, so we didn't create it. And his divine nature, so it's not human. The existence of our being, the planet, the stars, the sun, the moon, they declare the glory of God. That's God's evidence. In fact, the evidence worked. How do you know it worked? He says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. And you'll note the next phrase, so they are without excuse. The wrath of God is revealed because they are without excuse, because the evidence God set forth revealed it to them, and they knew it. What they did with it thereafter. And as you read this section, you really get the impression that this is about God and them and their reaction toward God and his reaction toward their reaction. God made them, God made the world, God created everything, and then God revealed himself to them, and they knew God, and they suppressed that truth. But more than that, he says they had knowledge of God, and they didn't respond to that knowledge correctly. They should have embraced it and rejoiced in that truth. Instead, they suppressed it. They should have honored God. Notice 21a. They knew God. They did not honor him as God. They should have been thankful. The next phrase says, 
they did not or did not give him thanks. They should have been convinced and convicted and converted. Instead, he says, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. As you read the section, you can see God makes the world, the evidence is abundant, they know it, and then they respond in every way other than what God would have desired them to do. They are foolish in their heart, and it's darkened. The revelation of God, the revealing of God, the knowledge of God should have illuminated. Instead, they turned that off and became futile, and their foolish heart was darkened. The next thing that happens is, he says, they professed themselves to be wise, and they became fools. Instead of following after God with what they knew, they opted to suppress the truth and effectively turn off the light of God and opt for their own minds, their own hearts, and their own ways. They professed themselves to be wise, and they became fools. Having done so, verse 23, they exchanged God. They should have been committed servants to Jehovah, the living, unseen God. Instead, they exchanged the glory of God, the incorruptible God, for an image made like corruptible man. It seems that that is the issue with humanity. When you don't want God, it's not a lack of evidence. It's not that you don't know. It's not that you can't understand it. In fact, it's that you actually do all of that. You do see it. You do reason correctly. You do understand it. The fact is, you just don't want it. And when you don't want it, there's really nothing anybody can do to convince you, not even God. In fact, not even God in the flesh. When they didn't want to believe Jesus, it didn't matter what Jesus did. Give sight to the blind. No, that didn't do it. Heal the, give hearing to the deaf. Raise a man from the dead. You know, at the end, after seeing and hearing of all the teachings and all of the miracles, and all of the things, they stand in front of the cross and they say, come down and we'll believe. Do you believe them? Not for one second. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, their great plan was, let's kill him. He just raised him from the dead. You think killing him is going to solve your problems? When you don't want to believe, nobody can make you believe. God says, Paul records, they are without excuse. What is the truth is, they want the position. And that really is always the battle. The battle is for who will sit on the throne of your heart. That's the war. It can only be occupied by one. God wants the place. And if God can't have that place, then you can't have God. And people understood that. And so rather than have God, they wanted themselves on the throne. And so after they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, 
they opted for an image in the form of, and first on the list is corruptible man. Then birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. They didn't want God, and they did everything they could to get to this place. This state of mind will render the Gentiles in a position of doom and futility and hopelessness. In fact, when you're reading about them, you will hear that kind of language. Look at Ephesians 4, for instance. Notice what Paul says. Now he's talking to brethren, and he says to the brethren, you can't live anymore like the Gentiles live. Well, listen to how Paul describes the Gentiles as living. Verse number 17 of chapter 4, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. How do they walk? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not so learn Christ. Beginning here in verse number 23, after they do this, God's reaction to that is next recorded. And God's reaction in verses 24, 26, and really it goes all the way down but three times in the next three or four verses, Paul says, God gave them King James, God gave them up. Yours might say, God gave them over. The mind that they have, that's recorded from 18 down to 25, that mind, God said, okay, I give you to that mind. And that mind once had, here's the thing you should understand, it doesn't matter where we are in human history. When an individual, a society, a nation, or groups of nations do what we just read from 18 to 25, when you do that, the morality of your existence going forward will not improve. You're not suddenly going to be better, kinder, gentler, more understanding, forgiving, loving. That's not what you're going to be. You're going to do exactly what we read here. The Bible will say righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. It doesn't matter who the people are. It doesn't matter where the people are. If they do what we just read, what follows will happen. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I, I agree. Uh, it's interesting as well, the order, and it will go this way throughout the book. When you and I are talking about God's righteousness, God is the recipient of the evil. God is the one who is on the end of the ungodliness. He is the one receiving that. 
And so that ungodliness is expressed toward God. That desire to suppress truth, that's expressed toward God. The refusal and the exchange, that's expressed toward God. And after that's expressed is when God gives his grace. It's after we do that to him that he then demonstrates his goodness toward us. And so his righteousness can really be seen in that he is so often receiving ungodliness and watching unrighteousness. And it's sin that moves God to give grace. It's one of the reasons, and you'll just want to tack this down, it's one of the reasons that works can never justify because you're already in a debt you can't work your way out of. By the time you're ungodly, by the time you're unrighteous, there's not a lot you can do to fix that. In fact, there's nothing you can do. You can't fix it. You are now in sin, and in sin, you need God's grace. If God doesn't move toward you in sin, you can't get out on your own. And so there's no amount of work you can do in sin to work your way out of sin. You just can't do that. And so Paul is going to say, when we were without strength, Christ died. When we could do nothing, and that's part of what God wants us to understand, is that you are incapable and you need me. And you have to rely on my goodness to get you out. So what does God do? Three times, there, beginning in verse 24, he be, opens by saying, therefore, that is, 18, 19, 20, down to verse 23, therefore God gave them over. He gave them over to what? In the lust of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. What happened to them? God said, go ahead. It is an attack and a rejection of God and God says, okay, you go ahead and you do that. And when you leave God in this way, then God leaves you to yourself. Left to yourself, you're in the hands of a fool. And if you want a good study of fools and foolishness, see the book of Proverbs. They have been left to themselves. And God says they were, they were fools, verse 22. They professed themselves to be wise, they became fools. God left them to themselves, and what happened? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You'll notice the word exchanged again, changed or exchanged. They had the truth. They understood the truth, but already they suppressed it. They denied it. They rejected it. They gave themselves over, and as a result, they exchanged truth, and they opted to believe a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You'll notice the choices involved. They rather would do this than the other. When this is the case, everything simply becomes distorted. It becomes a shell of itself and a perversion of what it ought to be. Instead of purity, there'll be perversion. Instead of natural, there'll be unnatural. Instead of self-control, there'll be burning in lust. Instead of decency, it'll be indecency. Instead of holiness, it'll be depraved. Instead of proper, it'll be improper. Notice what happens as we keep reading. Verse 26 says it again, for this reason, God gave them over 
to degrading passions. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. There is a natural and there's an unnatural. How could they have lived the natural? Well, they could have, they could have accepted the evidence. They could have lived with God. They could have walked out. They could have done all the things differently than they did. But having chosen to exchange God, suppress the truth, worship the idols, make themselves God, profess themselves wise, because when you do all of that, everything just becomes the exact opposite of what it should be. These degrading passions for the women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, let me pause here and just say this. You might think, well, a person goes down that road long enough, they'll suddenly realize it and they'll spin and turn around. You hope so. But more often than not, what happens is you defend it. You start to justify it. You figure out a way to make it the right thing. In fact, if you're going to suppress the truth and believe a lie, what's going to come out when you talk, truth or lies? You're not going to accept this as wrong now, even when you start to feel the weight of the implications and the consequences. You're not suddenly going to spin and turn it. What you're going to do is double down. In fact, you will flat out, Isaiah chapter 5 will say, you will call evil good and good evil. You will call light darkness and darkness light. You will put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You will stand right in the middle of all of the wrong and call it right. And then you will defend it and defend it and defend it and demand that other people agree and say the same. Now, you're lying, but it's become truth to you. You firmly believe that what you're doing. I wouldn't want us to miss when the mind changes. When the mind rejects God, what the mind is going to ask for is consistency. It's not going to allow itself to say this is wrong and keep doing it without consequence. At some point, a rejection of God, a suppression of truth, all of this activity lets the mind say what we're doing is right. And now you're going to defend it. When you speak, you will be speaking that it's right. This is how the Pharisees could act the way they were acting with Jesus. The mind is telling them it's right. You could see it and then say, he just cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. You could actually see the miracle. You could hire people to lie on Jesus in a court proceeding and then say, we can't take the money back because it's blood money. It's blood money because you paid for it, but it's blood money. The, once you let your mind do this to God, well, now you are God. You're the only guiding, leading principle and force. And what you say, you're going to try to do what's in your mind. You're going to try to live that. God has allowed them to be what they want. And he has given them over, giving them over. Verse 28 or end of verse 27, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the penalty of their error. 
another sermon, another day, but there is the law of sowing and reaping, and there are consequences to our actions, and no amount of talking and bullying and threatening can change that. There was penalty. There was consequence to these things, and they couldn't be avoided and or changed. Verse 28, as just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. From verse 29 down to verse 32, it highlights the expression, not that 25, 26, 27 didn't, but how does that then play out in life? Well, every area of life will now be impacted by that mindset. Go back again to verse 18. End of the verse, they suppress the truth. Verse 19, that which is known about God. 19, it's evident to them. Verse 20, his invisible nature's eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood. They are without excuse. Even though they knew God, all of this knowledge, the end of verse 25 says they exchanged it the truth of God for a lie. So immediately then, the morality goes down. They begin to, men and women, use each other unnaturally. Beginning in verse 29 to the end of the chapter simply highlights the expressions of this ungodly and unrighteousness and the hearts of the Gentiles. What would have flown out of such hearts Verse 29, he says, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, dis any one of these would be bad enough, wouldn't it? But this is characteristic of the Gentiles' hearts. And he's nowhere near done. This is what they would have lived like. If you go back and read sometimes Leviticus 18, read that chapter and hear God through Moses tell Israel, you can't live like this. The reason you're running these nations out of this land, the reason that's happening is this is what they were doing in this land. But you go back and read Leviticus 18, you'll be reading this. You'll be, you'll be reading this. And that's what God is saying. This is what they would do. How did they get there? They knew God. They exchanged God. They refused to acknowledge God and to keep him in their knowledge. He goes on, and he, again, the list would have just full. And notice words like filled with all unrighteousness, filled with all. Notice words like full of envy, full of envy, filled with all wickedness, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Some people may not think that should make the list. It made the list disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. 
the conclusion of that behavior with the Gentiles is verse 32. And although they know, knew the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. That, that's Scripture's disposition. That's God's disposition. Of course, this has been all about God. All of what we've read was directed toward God first. Once it's directed toward God, eventually other people, people will suffer the consequences of that. But it was God first. And the verse says there are those who practice such things that are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval. They endorse, they approve of, they count these people, the good people, to those who practice such things. They are not ignorant. They are without excuse. This is the Gentile world, and this is why they needed the gospel. This is also why God called Abraham out of his father's house, out of idolatry, Joshua 24, 1 and 2, and chose him and then made the promises and a nation going forward. Abraham will be pivotal as we go forward in the book. Now, as we get into chapter 2, the Jews would have agreed with Paul's assessment of the Gentiles wholeheartedly. They would have read chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and said, preach, preacher, preach. They would have said amen to that, amen and amen. They would have so agreed with Paul's assessments of the Gentiles. And then Paul, through inspiration, penned chapter 2. And guess what he said in chapter 2? You are the same. Chapter 1, the Gentiles need the gospel because of sin. Chapter 2, the Jews need the gospel because of sin. The Gentiles are under sin. The Jews are under sin. Both are under sin. And Paul begins by saying, you two are without excuse. The sameness of sin. That's how we'll couch chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. Therefore... You have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who passes judgment for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. If he had their agreement at the end, he would certainly have their attention in chapter 2 with that opening. And what Paul said is very succinctly, y'all did the same thing. God did this to the Gentiles, and you'll We'll come back to the phrases, he gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them up. He had the Jews as his covenant people. He didn't have the Gentiles as his covenant people. The Jews were his covenant people. He'd given up the, Jew, the Gentiles. However, the Jews' miscalculation was they had the law and they were God's people, and therefore they were saved. It didn't matter then how they lived. They lived in such a way, actually, that was out of harmony with the law and the covenant they had. And this is why Paul alleges them that you were the same, you behaved the same way. And he'll say it in clearer terms later. Verse number one down to verse number eight or so, he talks about judgment again. And the wrath of God, remember, it's revealed against all 
ungodliness and unrighteousness. Well, what if God's covenant people are ungodly and unrighteous? Well, let's read and see what happens. Therefore, you have no excuse, everyone, and you pass the judgment for in that you judge another. You condemn yourself, for you, ju- you who judge practice the same things. And immediately, he says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Well, the those under question now are his covenant people, but they're practicing the same thing. So then what are they worthy of? God's judgment. Verse number three, but do you suppose, oh, suppose this, O oh man, that you who pass judgments on another, when you, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? He's talking to the Jews here, and you can see the pronouns of you and yours and old man. And he's, he's done with the Gentiles for a moment. He's turned his attention to the Jews, and he says, you're doing the same things. And if you're doing the same thing and God is who he is, then he can't approve of it if you do it. And so he says, it's righteous. It rightly falls. It's inclusive. It falls upon all. Those who practice such things. But again, you'll notice the kindness, verse 4, tolerance, patience, not knowing. King James says the word goodness of God. Everyone who knows God should understand Romans 2, 4. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. That's the way it's supposed to work. It's not supposed to be a threat. It's supposed to be goodness. The one who has already treated you so well, you're treating with evil and disdain. And what is he giving you in return? Grace and kindness and mercy. What should you do? Let his goodness bring you home. The Jews haven't done that. Notice verse number five. But because of your stubbornness, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Instead of turning and coming home, they are being stubborn and unrepentant. And there is clearly in the Old Testament these scenes where God's mercy and grace has been spurned for so long that at some point, judgment does come. In the interim of that, the goodness of God is inviting you to come back home, and they have and are refusing. He talks about God's judgment, and he says of that judgment, it's first of all righteous, and he says in verse number six, it's, it's fair. He will render to each person according to his deeds. And then from verse 7 down to verse 11, he talks about two kinds of people. Verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, they will receive eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. 
God is the absolute perfection of the execution of justice. It will be right, it will be fair, it will be balanced, it will be in harmony and exactly what a person deserves. And it will be gracious and merciful before the judgment comes. It's 8 o'clock, good people. I know, I know, I feel the same way. Any questions or comments you have about anything we discussed tonight? Brother J.L., would you lead us in a word of prayer, please, sir? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for times like this, that we can study your word in view of an eternity that drives before us. Mm -hmm. Father, we appreciate the lesson tonight, the preparation that Brother Eric gives. Let each one of us have an open mind. We're so thankful for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light for the pathway. Be with those that have lost loved ones. Comfort them. Be with each one of us tonight. We thank you and we're thankful for Jesus Christ and through whom we pray. Amen.